you, Adam. Hi. It's good to see you all. My uh, voice isn't 100%, so that's uh, a bit sad. I couldn't really uh, sing up. I love uh, the song up there, but uh, it's great to be able to be with you. And great to be able to go back to Joshua. So if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10, that'd be fantastic. open, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom to open our Bibles. We thank you, dear Lord, for this opportunity to come before you, to learn, to grow. And please, we ask that you would speak to us now. Give our hearts that readiness to take on board what you say to us. And we ask this in Jesus, your son's name. Amen. Well, the title of the message today is The Day That the Sun Stood Still. The Day the Sun Stood Still. Now, the universe, if you've studied science at all, seems to work according to laws, doesn't it? Laws of physics, chemistry, and so on. And it's generally good that the universe does run to certain rules and so on because we can expect that when we stand on the ground that we won't sink through out into outer space through the earth and into outer space that we can understand that things that when we pick them up they're going to behave in a certain way and we can put things in uh, safety places of safety because we know there are certain laws that uh, are operating in the universe but the question for us at the beginning do we need these known laws to exist do we need them to be operating, to actually exist at all. Can we exist? Could life continue? Could we be happy and fulfilled if somehow those laws were suspended or changed? Question for us to think about. Might be hard to imagine. Imagine a world where gravity didn't work. Could be fun until you want to uh, have something stay in the same place at the same, for, for any period of time. It would be fun, wouldn't it, if solid things weren't always solid and we could walk through walls, but There'll be occasions when we, we need to keep the children in, and uh, if even a stair gate or a wall won't keep the children in, what do you do? You know, so we need things to, to be solid, usually speaking, most times. What if the world stopped turning? What will happen? What will be the consequences as we understand them? Well, let's go back to chapter 9 and uh, look back a little bit. Looking back as we finished a few weeks ago now, uh, we see that the Israelites were promised, or rather the Gibeonites were promised by the Israelites, that they would not attack them. There was a treaty, a peace treaty, made between the, the Gibeonite tribe and the Israelites. And we see that that promise is going to be kept. Uh, so that's a, a lovely thing we're going to see in shortly in a, in a moment. But there's a promise made. It was a, a kind of a, a deception by the Gibeonites, pretending that they were from a faraway country, that they were, that they were far rights when they were actually near rights. Uh, but God... Um, honored that promise, uh, the people of Israel honored that promise and made this uh, treaty with them. Now we're going to kind of divide up the passage into kind of five sections. First of all we can see that there's the reaction of the kings, the other kings of the Canaanites, there's alarm. Then we see that there's a rescue mission, it's taken, is, is underway in verses 6 to 7. And then verses 8 and 12 we see how Joshua refers to the Lord, listens to him, speaks to him. And then verses 9 to 10, we see the routing of the enemy. 
and then verses 11 to 15, uh, we see remarkable interventions. So first of all, let's look at the reaction of the kings. There was alarm in those hills. Now, if you're interested, that's a, a picture of one of the places I visited on my time away. And uh, Andrew, Pastor Andrew has asked me uh, this evening at Pelham Street to do a report on the, uh, the, the trip away. So if you uh, are able to come this evening, you'll get uh, killed by a PowerPoint. Um, but no, no, this evening you'll be able to come and, and hear about what happened when, when I was away. And so please do, it'd be lovely to have you there, as well as the fellowship you can have there at Pelham Street this evening. Uh, I think it'll be on Zoom, uh, so you could watch there, but it'd be nice to see if you're able to come along. Anyway, that's just a little uh, advert about that. But let's think about the, the, the reaction of the kings. Now, the tribe of Gibeon used to be one of them, one of all these different tribes in Canaan. But they'd made this peace treaty with Israel. So now five of the Canaanite kings gather together, gather their troops, besiege the city of Gibeon, the tribe of Gibeon, and attack it. They, they, they want to punish them for their treaty uh, with Israel. Gibeon then sends out a messenger somehow to ask for help from Israel. So the messenger goes out, and the question, of course, that the Gibeonites will be thinking, will Israel keep their promise to, to, to look after us, to protect us? Well, thankfully they do. Verses uh, 6 to 8, we see that there is a, a rescue, or 6 to 7, there's a, a rescue mission. And they do keep their promise. They come to their aid. Joshua and his troops march out to protect. Now, as we were thinking last time, we see here the emphasis on the importance of promises, keeping promises, our promises to God, our promises to our wives, to our husbands, our promises to our family, to our church family. It's important that our word is our bond. And it's also good to point out the fact that Israel didn't just keep their promise negatively. They could have said, well, we promise not to uh, attack you, so you know, we'll leave you to yourselves. No, they actually keep their promise positively as well, don't they? Because Gibeon is under attack, and they go to take, uh, uh, take um, offer their help to the Gibeonites, and they take a positive step to stand there in, uh, to protect the Gibeonites and to fight the battle uh, on their behalf. So they keep the promise negatively. They, they don't attack the Gibeonites, but they also come to the, into the situation to keep their promise positively. So the importance of keeping promises is highlighted there. But also, verses 8 and 12, we see how there is reference to the Lord. We can see that Joshua is in communication with the Lord. In verse 8, uh, we see how the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua is listening to the Lord, affirming that it's the right thing to do to march out to protect the Gibeonites. But also we see in verse 12 how that Joshua prays to the Lord. So there's communication both ways. Verse 12, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. So we see Joshua speaking to the Lord. So there's communication going on. And it's interesting that when you look through the Bible, when people such as Joshua are in communication with God, listening to him, responding to him, talking to him, and hearing what he says, then they always get it right. And there's always victory, there's always blessing, one way or another. And so it reminds us of an attitude that we need to have as we come before God, and that's shown to us very clearly in Psalm 25. This is a lovely psalm and some wonderful words here about the attitude that we need to have as we come before God. Psalm 
25. It's a very positive attitude that we need to, to have. May your ways, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Is that the kind of prayer that we pray every day when we open our Bibles or as we step out into our daily lives? Lord, guide me. Lord, teach me. Lord, show me the way that you want me to live, the way that you want me to go. When God's people are in communication with God, listening to him, it might not be an easy journey they're taking on, but as we let God guide us, there will always be blessing. So are we in communication with God? And of course, in family lives and in marriage uh, and in community, it's always good to maintain that communication with each other. It's so important as well to apply it in that sense. But primarily here, we see communication referring to the Lord. And then we come to the, the routing of the enemy. The routing of the enemy, verses 9 to 10. Now we see that Joshua and his troops, they march all through the night to get to Gibeon and to help them. They catch the enemies by surprise because uh, the enemy wasn't expecting them to have marched all through the night. So the enemy is taken by surprise. They engage in the battle and they chase the enemy and it says they chase the enemy through the ascent or uh, I guess a, a kind of going uphill. So they're chasing the enemy through the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. So it, it, in this battle there's real courage. There's real effort. They march all through the night. There's strategy. There's determination in this battle, in this engagement with the enemies of, who are the, now the enemies of Gibeon. But there are still many of the enemy forces escaping, running away, potentially to find somewhere to regroup and then to return and re-attack, maybe on, on another occasion to attack the Gibeonites or to regroup and attack the Israelites. Now obviously so far in this battle, we see how the Lord is helping Israel to do their part. God gives us our bodies, our energy, everything is ultimately from God, isn't it? So even as humans put their effort into things, we always need to thank God for our breath, for the energy that we have for our lives. So it's always, if you like, down to the power and strength that God gives to us. We can make good choices and bad choices to use the energy and strength God gives to us, but all things ultimately come from God and we're responsible to use the gifts and abilities God gives to us. But it's a good while before we see a remarkable intervention occur. The Israelites march all through the night, uphill it sounds, up an ascent. They are engaging battle, using their swords, they're fighting, the sweat, blood, tears. This is a real battle. Energy is, is fading. It's, it's a hard battle. It's people using strategy. We think how Joshua used, used the strategy of marching all through the night and a surprise attack probably early in the morning. So the strategy involved and determination. They keep following, keep chasing the enemy, trying to catch up with them. But it's a good, and it's a good while before a remarkable set of intervention occurs. Now, I don't know whether you've seen Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe and some of the other Narnia films, but you've got the human heroes, haven't you, who come uh, from this world and go into the world of Narnia. And the, the human heroes and heroines of the story, they often fight hard, don't they? And you can, you can probably remember the big battle scenes where there's a, the, the, the human heroes and the, the goodies of Narnia, if you like, against the vast hordes of all the baddies of Narnia. And they're out there and you see these amazing, immense battle scenes in, in the current films and uh, all the computer graphics and everything. 
But it's, it's so spectacular, isn't it, as these two armies face each other and uh, the, the goodies seem to be uh, sometimes outnumbered and so on in these kind of scenes. And the enemy's approaching and uh, with great noise and, and they can feel the, the music in the background building up the scene and that there's fear building up and anticipation. Where's Aslan? Where's the lion? He's not there, is he? If you watch the film The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and the battle is engaged and there are naiads and the dryads and centaurs flying everywhere and uh, all uh, falling down and, and being injured and killed and so on. And, and then the battle goes to the enemy and the enemy seems to be uh, kind of winning. And then Aslan's army, Aslan's still not there, Aslan's army then makes an advance and seems, things seem to be going in their direction for a while. And then the enemy advance again and it looks as if all's going to be lost. And then where's Aslan? He's nowhere to be seen. We know he's working behind the scenes. If you've seen the film or read the book, you know that he's, he's, he's getting organized and there are the, the cavalry, if you like, is coming. The, the, the rescue is coming. He's working behind the scenes, but the, the heroes and the heroines of our story are engaging in a dramatic, determined effort to keep hold of their stand. But then at the 11th hour, Aslan appears and the reinforcements are there and the wicked queen is defeated and the battle is won. Well, it's a, a well-known dramatic effect, isn't it? When uh, writing a book or, or making a film, are, are the good guys, uh, well, we know they'll win in the end. We know they'll win in the end, but nevertheless, they go through an experience where it doesn't always feel like ending well. And so you get that dramatic suspense there in the book or the film. It doesn't always feel like ending well, but we know that Aslan will turn up sometime soon. Now, if you turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 5, 2 Timothy chapter sorry, 4, and verse 5, we see the Apostle Paul, in his service for God, has had to use effort, he's had to use courage, he's had to use real determination, he's used strategy, he's gone to key cities to preach the gospel, to plant churches and it's been hard there have been times when it's been a real struggle it's been a time, time there have been times when it seems where is the help of the lord it's come at the 11th hours in different occasions in his life it's not been easy this is what he says here in verse 4 of uh, chapter 4 to timothy they would sorry uh, verse 5 but as you but as for you exercise self-control in everything Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. It's been tough for Paul been tough for him and there's an older man there who is expecting his departure from this life as he's going to be executed by Emperor Nero he says to Timothy well he doesn't say to him make sure you keep it easy does he get away from hardship he says endure hardship do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry and so God calls us to use real effort in our service for him to use strategy to take risks to make sacrifices, even at times to look defeated. 
God calls us to put real effort into the Christian life and to Christian service, Christian ministry. But whether it's early on or whether it's the 11th hour, we know that God will always intervene. We always know that the final victory is certain. It's not just a technique of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe storyline. It's not just a film technique, but giving us suspense. Though we have to work hard and though sometimes we have to wait to the 11th hour. Sometimes help comes early, doesn't it? Sometimes it's the 11th hour, but we know that the victory is certain. We're called to engage with real effort, but we balance, of course, that with trust, that our strength is from the Lord, that as we put real effort into our service, the Lord will strengthen us. He'll give us what we need for each step of the way. And we know that in the end, the victory is ours because of Him. So we need to maintain a prayerful, open communication with Him as we serve the Lord day by day. We need to keep that uh, heart that is teachable and willing to listen. And we do need to put real effort into our Christian living. That discipline of reading our Bibles, praying, stepping up to do the right thing, to step into the breach when we need to. We do need to maintain a real effort and strategic thinking in our lives. But we know that in the end we will have the victory, even though it could be very hard, and even though there might be 11th hour experiences, because of him, the Lord will come. And from the book, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, when we blow the trumpet, help of some kind will come from somewhere. So we know that he will help us in the end. But again, why doesn't Aslan arrive near the start of battle, we might be thinking, when we think about the film. Why doesn't God intervene with a dramatic rescue right at the beginning as the Israelites start to chase off and attack the attackers of the Gibeonites? Why is it later on, after the effort of the chase, the uphill ascent, fighting, the struggle, the determination? Why not from the start? Well, I'm sure we know the answer to that one, don't we? It's because the journey, though it be difficult, is a journey in which we learn lessons. It's a journey in which we learn about ourselves. Now, if everything is very easy all the time, we don't learn so much about ourselves, do we? When we come up against it, we see our faults. It's almost like we're looking in a mirror. It's like when we have struggles in our lives, when we have, when we have to put real effort into things, it's almost like a mirror's held up when we, we see our lack of patience or our irritability or, or whatever it might be. And we, these things are revealed. And we say, yeah, Lord, I can see that now. Please help me. Have more patience. Have more graciousness and, and so on. So there are lessons to learn about ourselves. Situations where we have to put real effort in, where God doesn't intervene earlier on as we'd hope, him to, hope he would, it exposes our weaknesses. We, we see our frailty. And that actually then often turns us to people who are more prayerful, doesn't it? It makes us more prayerful because we... We recognize our weakness. We don't go into situations with that kind of self-confidence, that pride and that boldness that comes from our own selves. But we, we go into situations with a boldness, relying upon the Lord, praying to him, speaking to him. Lord, I can't do this. I'm too nervous. I'm too anxious. But Lord, I ask you for your help, your strength. And so we become more prayerful as we go through the journey, though it be uphill and difficult at times. So we see our character faults. And we can, we can then work on them 
and with God's help we can grow to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, and, and, and so on. The fruit of the Spirit. We can address those things in our lives where there's faults that need to be worked on. Pray, Lord, make me more joyful. Make me less of a grump. Make me less irritable. Lord, make me more patient, more forbearing, more, more persevere. And also, there's an adventure of faith. There's an adventure of faith. Now, in, in James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, it tells us there that, I mean, it's, it's something which is sometimes, in a way, a bit shocking, isn't it, to read what James says here? Because it's not the way we normally think. It's not the, the way that we, we naturally think. So James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Huh? It doesn't sound what we'd normally hear. You know, we'd be expecting some sympathy, wouldn't we? Expecting some more kind of a tender sympathy here. And there is that in the Bible, of course. And God is compassionate for the But James the Apostle says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So, there's an adventure of faith in our growing, in our progress, as we trust the Lord through difficult times, as we hold on to Him, though the, the help that we would want now to come immediately doesn't come, but we hold on to Him in faith, and we find that we grow and develop through that experience. But also, there's an adventure of faith in another sense, in that God calls us to step out into situations that are outside our comfort zone. That God will call us into situations where there's a cost, where there's a sacrifice involved, where we have to go forward sowing in tears before we reap with joy. And there's an adventure. It could be an adventure to the, another part of the world, could be an adventure in your hometown, in the community in which you live. C.T. Studd, famous missionary, wrote this. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of town. Some people want a comfort zone and just to stay there. They don't want the adventure of faith. They just want to be comfortable. But as C.T. Studd said here, he wanted to go, even as he did, to, to, to the ends of the earth as it was as it were, to, to build a rescue shop, to be there on the edge of hell, as it were, within a yard of hell, to say to people, no, here's Jesus, you need him, he can save you. And so, of course, we don't have to be at the other part of the world to run a rescue shop. It could be in the toddler group here on Thursday morning. It could be in the after-school club, that's part of our rescue shop, isn't it? It could be your, amongst your neighbours, your friends and your family, as you live Put that effort into serving the Lord, into reaching people's lives, touching people's lives with the gospel. You run a rescue shop. And it could be, and it is a great adventure of faith as we step out to serve the Lord. So that's why the help doesn't always come at the beginning, because God has a plan and purpose. So, the routing of the enemy. Now, let's think about some remarkable interventions that we have here in verses 11 to 15. Now notice in the verse 13, and the middle of verse 13, there's a reference to the book of Jashar, or the book of the upright. Now it's interesting how that people years and years ago, in the time of 
Joshua about um, excuse me about 1,400-ish uh, BC. They had books, and people of that day and age said, "We saw it. We witnessed something." And it's also written in another historical book, the book of Joshua. Now, when I was at school doing A-levels, uh, religious studies, the teacher said, basically was saying that the theory of the day was that people like Moses and folk like that, they didn't know how to read and write, basically ignorant peasants, really, and uh, that everything was written later on after the events. But we know that going even back before Moses to 2000 BC, uh, in the city uh, of Ur, uh, where Abraham came from, around his time, archaeological archaeological digs have found intricate artwork that people today don't know how to, to make, uh, literature and so on and so it just blows out the water that people that day were ignorant peasants who didn't know how to, to read and write but it is interesting isn't it that uh, people would assume that ancient folk are just gullible, believe anything uh, but actually we see this reference to another source which shows to us the, the importance to the people of this day and age that there is historical corroboration of an event. That's just an aside in a sense, but that's important to note here. Now, in verse 11, we see that God uses a well-known weather event, hail, probably supersized here in this event, but it's not a brand new phenomenon. Hail comes out the sky at certain times. It's not absolutely brand new. Maybe the timing, and of course, the, the, well, certainly it was a miracle here, and, and maybe the size of the hail was a miracle, and that he did the job of getting rid of much of the enemy. Uh, again, it all kind of works together as a, a remarkable intervention of God, but it's not a brand new phenomenon. But when we come to verse 12 to 15, we see something unprecedented. We see something that is brand new. It was a unique day in the history of the world. Verse 12, Joshua prays, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't it written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned from camp. So here we see a remarkable intervention. Now from the perspective of someone standing on the earth at that time, the sun and the moon stood still. Now of course there are times when we can uh, see the sun and the moon at the same time in the sky, but they've never stood still. They've never stood still. Now of course we know that the earth goes around the sun, we know that the earth goes around the sun, don't we? And of course the moon goes around, around the earth, but we still talk about sunrise and sunset, don't we? We can talk it from the perspective of standing on the earth, seeing the sunrise in the, in the eastern and set in the west. So as far as we can understand it, this amazing intervention, this miracle appears to need the earth to stop rotating and for the moon to stop orbiting. That's what we would possibly understand from reading this verse here. The sun, in the midday position, stood there for, uh, if you count the day as a, the daylight hours, 12 hours, or 24 hours, if, if it's referring to a full day here, 
And of course the moon normally travels around the Earth, or somehow the, the moon is it's fixed its position. So the Earth appears to have stopped spinning, and the sun, sorry, the moon seems to have stopped orbiting the Earth. Now the Earth, the equator, spins around about 1,000 miles per hour. So imagine being in a car, traveling at hundreds of miles an hour, maybe 1,000 miles an hour if you're at the equator, and then suddenly coming to a halt. Seatbelts are no good, are <laughs> Seatbelt wouldn't help in that situation. Now, did God cause it to happen kind of gradually anticipating Joshua's prayer? We just don't know, do we? We don't understand the mechanics of how this could physically happen. We don't understand how it could happen without everything not bolted down on the earth, just flying around at a, a thousand miles an hour and crashing into whatever else is going around. There'll be massive tsunamis and, and earthquakes and so on. We don't know how it could have happened. But the question behind that is, could God do this? Could God do it? Well, I'd say absolutely yes. Yes, he could do it. You see, the universe usually follows the expected laws of physics, doesn't it? Chemistry, biology, and so on. But of course, our understanding of the laws is only what we've discovered so far anyway. But this is the way that things normally work. Gravity normally works in a certain way. The, the physical laws normally work in a certain way. But of course, God created the universe, didn't he? And God created the way it normally works. See, God is not limited to the, the laws of the way things normally work. God is not limited to those laws which he created. You see, God created the universe by his word, by his decree. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in Hebrews, um, should be 11, verse 3, it talks there about how God created out of things that are invisible as he spoke these things into existence. So when God decided how he was going to create the universe, he didn't kind of refer to a book of how the universe is supposed to work I think, well, I've got, I've got to make the universe this way because th there's these laws that are in place and I need to follow these instructions. He didn't have to do that. He spoke, and the way that the universe works is the way that he decided in his wisdom for it to normally operate. Because God is the ultimate origin and he is the creator of all things. Not just of the stuff, but how the stuff works, how matter works. God was not bound by pre-existing laws. God is not under laws of anything else because by definition, that's what God is. He is God. He's above all pre any, anything else. He didn't have to follow anything else. The only thing it had to be was good because God is good. That's the only thing it had to be. But it could be anything that God is wisdom which he is so therefore, miracles are not God breaking a set of rules. Miracles are not God kind of breaking his own rules in the sense of things that are uh, kind of fixed. But, he's, but God is choosing to act in a different way from the normal. That's what a miracle is. God, in his free and sovereign power, is choosing to act in a way according to his own wisdom, which is not the normal way that we experience as I said, the only thing that restricts God, in a sense, is God's integrity and God's righteousness. The 
It has to be for some good. And that's the beautiful thing about the God of the Bible, about the true living God, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because some people have an idea of God, well, God's all-powerful, he can do absolutely anything, and therefore he could, be, he could be good at being bad. He could choose to do unrighteous things. He could be capricious. He could make a promise, but in the end, he might not keep his promise because he's God. But we have a God who is almighty and all-powerful. I can do anything he chooses, but he must do it in a good way. Because he's righteous. Because he's truthful. And that's beautiful, isn't it, to think that that is our Heavenly Father. That though we go through the most awful experiences in our lives and we feel everything is falling apart, we hold on to the fact that, as Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. God is good. And even though in the, in the middle of it we think, well, where, where are you being good to me in this? Because it feels awful. But we hold on and we know that there's a Father who is true to himself. Who, although he is the almighty creator who is all powerful he is good and it's a wonderful wonderful truth all over time we see some interesting things about how God created the world in Genesis chapter 1 uh, we see that uh, how God created on, on the fourth day the, the plants and uh, the, the vegetation and creatures and, and uh, the plant life and so on vegetable life uh, but then we see, at that point, he hadn't created the sun, the moon, and the stars. So it was later on that God created. Verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And so God made the two greater lights. And we know those as the, the sun and the moon. And he also made the stars. You know, kind of a, just a, an offhand thing. He made the stars. <laughs> so... God made the sun and the moon after he created the plant life. And of course, right at the beginning, God said, let there be light. So there was a source of light on the earth before the sun, the moon, and before the stars. Yes, God could have done this miracle here in Joshua chapter 10, because he is the creator of all things. He's free and sovereign to use his power. And the only restriction is, it must be for good. We see that in Luke chapter 23, and, and Pastor Andrew was mentioning this at the uh, Good Friday service, how the darkness came on the earth as Jesus was on the cross, suffering there to save us uh, from our sins. And how it talks in Luke 23 about how the, the sun's light failed as there was darkness. Verse 44, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. And, you know, if people looked into this, it couldn't have been eclipse. It couldn't have been some normal natural phenomena that we, could, we can think of. And yet, for all these three hours, it went dark. How could it happen? Well, God was obviously speaking to us through this, through this darkness, showing the horror of what Jesus was going through as he suffered there on the cross to save us, and that the symbol of the, the darkness, a picture of judgment, and the horror of what Jesus was experiencing is just speaking to us. But God did it. And he can do it. He could do it, do it and did do it. Because he is the all-powerful creator of God. In Revelation chapter 21 uh, and verse 23, we see that after the end of everything, when the earth is uh, recreated and uh, 
after the, the judgment in, in the end of Luke, sorry, Revelation 21, verse 23, we see a, a different kind of world. A different kind of world. Similar, in, 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 I guess, in many ways, but there's, there's differences about it. Go to verse 22. The uh, Apostle John writes, I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And we know, of course, that Revelation has a, a symbolic picture language here, but nevertheless, it's telling us something, isn't it, that we don't need, ultimately, we don't need a physical sun to exist. We don't need a created light such as that to exist, because God himself is the light that we need. The Lamb is the, the Lamb. So in the future heavenly state, we won't need the light of the sun or moon. I don't think it says we won't necessarily have a sun or moon, but we don't need them. Because the glory of God and the Lamb is the light and the Lamb. So it raises the question of ultimately, what do we need to exist? What do we need to be happy? Keep that in mind. But then, why did God do this? Why did God intervene in this way? What reasons would there be? Well, practical reason. The sun shining longer, the day lasting longer, it enabled Israel to take full advantage in the battle, to kind of fully wrap the enemy so that they couldn't regroup and reattack. So, practical thing in terms of the battle. We know that it was a unique day, a very special day, but a day that encouraged Israel to trust in God. In the memory of Israel, written here, recorded for them, God did this for us. This is our God. If we keep in communication with Him, if we trust in Him and obey Him, we know we can rely upon Him to intervene in one way or another. So it would encourage them to trust in God and to obey God. And we know that when Israel trusted and obeyed, they were blessed. Not necessarily an easy route, but they were blessed ultimately when they trusted and obeyed. When they didn't trust and they didn't obey, things fell apart. So here's amazing intervention which encourages faith and trust. Uh, and another practical uh, reason for this is, say, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, with whom Israel made a treaty, and God obviously wanted them to honour that treaty, it saved a whole set of people, the Gibeonites. It also showed the power and authority of God over nature. It shows that God is not subject to nature, but God has power and authority over nature. And there are par parallels when we see Jesus. And when we think uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ upon this earth as a human being, he walked on the water. That, that's overcoming physical laws, isn't it? He walked on the water. We see how he calmed the storm. Peace, we stand. Waves, winds. Power over nature. We see the same thing when he, he fed 5,000 people, probably 10,000 people if you added the, the women and children into that. 5,000, 10,000 people and just five loaves and three fish. That, that is not normal physical laws being operated there, is it? When you've got so much stuff and somehow it's multiplied to feed not just one boy for his lunch, but thousands and thousands of people. That is power over nature. That's power over physics, power over biology. You know, when he did that, he, he created cooked bread 
So the process of cooking flour and, and water and other things that go in the yeast that goes into the little loaves that the boy had, when he divided it, it wasn't just stuff, it was cooked. It was cooked to the right colour, wasn't it? And it cooked to the right temperature. It was bread for eating. And the same the fish, whether the fish were salted or, or whatever, or whether they were they were pre-cooked, but whatever condition to enable people to eat them, they were prepared. This is an amazing miracle. Power over nature, power over biology, power over physics, power over chemistry here. He's not breaking laws. He's above these laws. He's God with us. When Jesus raised the dead, remember outside the tomb of Lazarus? He's been dead for these days. Martha said, he'll be decaying. But out came the tomb. A man who was perfect, in perfect condition, healed. Power over nature, power over biology, power over the normal experiences, things that we normally observe and experience. And then, of course, Jesus dying to save us and rising from the dead. Power over death, power over decay, power over the grave. Now, this miracle, this intervention showed God's power over nature. The pagan worship of the Canaanites of the day they worshipped the god called Baal and lots of other gods too. But Baal was particularly supposed to be in charge of the weather. What happened when the hailstone came down? God showed that he is in charge of nature, not Baal. People of that day worshipped the sun and the moon. There might have been people calling upon various gods as they were uh, therefore attacking the Gibeonites and doing it in the name of their gods. But the Lord in this intervention shows to the people of Canaan and the wider people of the world, that he is the Lord over nature, not these gods. The sun and the moon aren't gods, but they're things that God has created by the word of his power. So therefore, it would show that the Lord is the true God. Not the, none of these other things. The Lord is the God. He is the true God. And also it shows to us that ultimately we don't even need the normal laws of physics. We don't even need the normal laws of chemistry to exist. It's good that they generally do because we know where we are. We know how things work. These are norms that we're used to and that we expect. But ultimately we don't need matter to behave in the way that it normally does. For us to exist, ultimately all we need is the Lord. So the big question is, do you have the Lord? Do you know him? Is he central to your life? Is he your Lord? In the end, we only need God. And therefore, it's so important that we, that we know him, that he's in place in our lives. Now, Psalm 46, verse 1 to 7, tells us something amazing uh, about how, where we need to put our trust and reliance. And for some of us, our experience feels a bit, what, a bit like what is being described in the psalm here. Psalm 46, verse 1 to 7. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its water roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil. There is a river, its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. 
Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The experience, imagine, of the earth trembling, the mountains toppling into the sea, kingdoms toppling, the earth melting. Where would our security be if matter, if stuff just melted away? Where is your security? We don't need them to remain, to be secure, because if we're a Christian, if we're a believer in Jesus, the Lord is our refuge and strength. He's our stronghold. And so we will be ultimately secure in God's presence in the city of God, with God, in his holy dwelling place. That is where we really need to be, ultimately. And sometimes we live for the security of this world and the, the stuff that we need now, yes, but we over-prioritize that at the expense of where we will ultimately really be eternally secure. And of course, to be there, to, be, to know that we'll be in the, the dwelling place of the Most High, we need a, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without his death to pay for our sins, we, couldn't, we can't know God and we cannot expect to be with him in his high and most wonderful dwelling place. So that's why, again, we need Jesus Christ. And that's why I urge you, again, if you're not yet a Christian, to trust in him. Because if we are in Christ, we're safe through the judgment that will come. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then even if the earth is dissolved under our feet, we know that we are safe and secure. And we know that one day we will see and feel a reality, a reality that is even greater and more stable than you can ever experience now. If you think this is real, ultimate reality, you ain't seen nothing yet. There's more to come. There's an even greater, more stable, permanent reality to come. And it's through faith in Jesus that we can know the God who is the Lord, who is the one who is over all nature, the ultimate refuge and stronghold. So then, our action plan. How about part of our action plan, having listened to this and read God's word this morning, to appreciate afresh the awesome power of God, just to be in wonder of who God is, indescribable, uncontainable. This is our God. Do we stand in awe of him? him? Maybe part of our action plan is to realize afresh that our security and our happiness does not depend upon material things. Now, of course, we need them. We need to be balanced. We need, to, we need stuff. We need to earn. We need to pay our bills, especially the electricity and the gas bills going up. We, we need stuff. So we're not being silly here and ignoring the importance of material things. But ultimately, our security depends upon God, who is above all the laws that he built into the universe. Is that where our ultimate security is? is that, have we entrusted our souls into his almighty hands? Sometimes we're more concerned about matter now and less concerned about our eternal security. And of course, if we get the, the balance right, if we get it right, then we will go through life with an attitude that is very different from a materialistic mindset which just looks to earthly security, earthly wealth and so on. Another thing that we see and maybe can be part of our action plan, how we're going to respond this morning, is to see that, that God is not limited by his creation. He's free to act with authority and power and that should hold us in deep respect to God. We should fear him. We should revere him. This is our God, but we're comforted and assured by the truth that God.
God can do anything he wants. He has ultimate authority and power. The only restriction is it has to be for good. And therefore, if you're with him, it will be for good. How will this impact and change your life and priorities? If it doesn't, have some impact on how, how we think, then there's not going to be much here today. But if we think about it and respond, act in some way, even if it's just a, a step, we'll be welcome. And God will take us on our journey of faith. Let's pray quietly about that for a moment, about your response, what your action plan will be. Father, we stand in awe of you, our great almighty creator God, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord who is above all the laws of physics and biology and chemistry, because you are the creator of all reality. And we thank you, Father, that you are this great, awesome God. Help us to adore you, to worship you, to be in awe of you, to revere you, not to take you trivially, but Lord, to respect you deeply. We thank you that you are almighty and you are all good. You are a righteous God. And that though we don't understand all the things that we go through in our lives, as we trust in you, we know that all things will work together for good for those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. Lord, you are so great and so almighty. You would be within your rights as a righteous judge to have not shown any mercy to us. You could have just cast us off and sentenced us for our sins. But no, Lord, in your compassion and love, you sent your Son to be our Savior. So that we little tiny pieces of dust on this tiny planet in a gigantic solar system, in a, what seems to us to be an infinite universe, Lord, you so love us. You count us as precious. You shed your own precious life blood to be our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for your love. And we ask now that you help us to serve you with determination, with strategy, with effort, with passion, Lord, that we would even take risks for your kingdom, that we would step forward in boldness of faith, Lord, to step outside comfort zones, to step into situations where maybe we wouldn't naturally choose. Give us that courage, Lord, like the Israelites, to engage in the battle. Thankfully, Lord, it's not a battle of swords. Thankfully, Lord, it's a battle for life. But Lord, thank you that we can engage with you. In, in the battle with your strength. And Lord, we do need your help. We do need your interventions. We need your provision. We need the strength, Lord. We need miracles at times, Lord, to, to see us through. But thank you that we can trust you, that you will, even if it's 11 pounds, provide us with all that we need. Because you say, you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. How then will you not provide us with all the things that we need? So we put our trust in you as we step forward in this journey of faith. Great creator, the mighty 